Welcome to BioThrive. What does it mean to thrive? I believe that in order to thrive, we need to optimize our biology, our chemistry, and the electrical frequency that courses through every cell and organ of our body. Thriving also means more than just a healthy body. It means abundant energy, deep connections, and happiness. BioThrive podcast is about all of this. You're invited to hear from leaders and innovators who share cutting-edge science tools and techniques to help you become the CEO of your own health. Don't settle for just getting by or surviving. It is your turn to thrive. Hi, everybody, and welcome to BioThrive, where you can learn how to be the CEO of your own health. Today, we have Ryan Bean, so excited. We're going to talk about breath and ketamine and transformation and all the amazing things that really can up-level your health and your well-being to a whole new level. Ryan is a yoga instructor, certified Wim Hof Method instructor, breathwork facilitator, meditation and mindfulness trainer, and retreat leader with Expansion Retreats. He's also the host of a mindful topic-based podcast called Life as an Observer. He received his yoga training in the foothills of the Himalayas, and he teaches many styles and modalities from the powerful flow yoga to gentle trauma-informed and sensitive practice with yin yoga. Incorporating meditation and pranayama, which is a fancy way of saying breath work, into each practice. Ryan is passionate about being in nature and using holistic and psychedelic integration approaches toward healing the mind, body, and soul. And he's going to be in Seattle with us in July for a workshop. Welcome back. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I, I, I was listening to you do my... Uh my bio again, and I'm like, you know, maybe there's some other things, you know, I get asked all the time, what do you do? You know, what do you do, Ryan? And it's always that same question, like, oh, you you want to know what I do for fun? What do I do for work? Who do I think I am? Okay, That's, so I go, always go through that same kind of uh, thought process within myself of who am I today, you know? And I guess I, I'm always just a creator, you know? I'm, I'm coming off of a couple weekends of retreats here in Southern Utah, and leading some Wim Hof Method fundamentals, so taking people into the cold. And uh, this next weekend, I'm off to Vegas to, to do a little teaching, and then we're planning to, to come up to Seattle. So yeah, I have a whole slew of just creation along the way, sort of just like pixie dust behind me, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. When I was doing my docuseries recording, I had to do these introductions, and I, I had to pick a local company because we recorded the docuseries in New York. And uh, I literally picked the company because their name was Pixie Dust. <laughs> oh, <just> yay. Like, <laughs> there's something magical about Pixie Dust. I love it. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to come up with like a breathwork style that's called Pixie Dust Breath or something. I don't know. <laughs> so what I really want to talk about today is breathwork and how that is used in your practice integrated with ketamine. And we can talk a little bit about ketamine itself, because some people actually might not know what it is, what family of drugs it's with and what it's used for and all kinds of things. So let's dig in with ketamine first, because that's sort of the the new kid on the block, though it's been around forever. 
It's been around a really long time. And I think that's where people get quite mistaken because they've learned about it in dark corners of the, uh, the internet and dark corners of the, the, the street where they've learned about ketamine. And they don't really realize that it's used uh, all the way back into the Vietnam era where it was replacing PCP as a sedative and an anesthetic. And they don't really realize that it has some value still in those realms. I mean, if anyone's been into to labor, they may have probably had ketamine. Um, there's a lot of other you know, surgeries that, that have used it, but it's really fairly predictable and safe. And what's really nice about it is you don't have to come off of any antidepressant medications to, to be able to use it to work for it with, uh, in augmenting your mental health therapy. So for us, we really like using ketamine as a, as a tool to, for integrated psychotherapy. And many options. So in, in my modality, I like to use um, oral administration using trochies, mostly because it pairs really well with the breath work, which we'll talk about. And uh, even though infusions are pretty much the norm, um, you know, within the ketamine world, there's so many other ways that we can use ketamine to move into psycholytic states with clients and really work therapy beyond using a, a needle and an IV. We, you know, there's lots of other ways. We have patients who we're working with who are younger. Oral administration works really well using trochies. I've even heard some clinics using just liquid ketamine in the mouth. I, I don't know I, if I would recommend it because of the taste, but some people yes, are doing yeah. that. There's nasal administration of it, you yeah. know, IM, uh, intermuscular, and really we're just finding really great results with people um, kind of working through some things or even uncovering things they didn't know that, that were preventing them from showing up as their, their best self. So for me, I like using the, 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 the trochies or the lozenges because they just pair really well with doing breath work and I can keep a, a client right where I need them to through the ups and downs of breath work uh, before we go into a, uh, a more sedated state to work uh, into the psychedelic medicine. Well, when I first started exploring offering this to my patients to help with depression, anxiety, even though it's not FDA approved, for though there are some research that started and, and it's looking very, very promising. And so what I did is I did a a physician's certification about ketamine. And I'm so glad I did. I learned so much about how it works. And as much as we know, there's just as much as we don't know about it. It is part of that psychedelic family where some people might be more uh, aware of what ayahuasca and psilocybin and, and things like that. As an MD, I love the ketamine because I know what's in it and I know the exact dose. And even though all of these other things occur in nature, nature also does not have the exact same active ingredients in any one particular mushroom or one particular dose of anything. And so I like the control of it since it is something that is bringing people to a new place. And the other thing I love about it is it actually has been shown in research to make new neural connections. Like we can up level the way we think. And if you can up level the way you think, then maybe you can think new thoughts and new solutions to the problems and the situations that you have in your life. And so one of the other things that I learned is that the setting of the ketamine treatment is so important. And that's where 
I was drawn to you and offering a workshop with you is that the breath work can actually, not only the setting of like, is it soft music? Is it, do you have a nice warm blanket? Is it quiet? Are you safe? We have uh, Lazy Boy chairs, one in each room, so everybody's very private. But also your space is your internal space, your body. So talk to me a little bit about how your breath can change the internal environment that is either A, good for growth, but B, a great preparation for a ketamine session. Well, there's a couple of reasons why why the breath is good in a ketamine session. I mean, we have to go into kind of this autonomic nervous system and sort of its different settings. So we have, you know, what we some call the reptilian brain or we call the fight or flight mechanisms that are true. That happen a lot of times as we go into any kind of therapy, um, resistance, what's actually going to happen, what are you going to learn about me, what, you know, and there's maybe even fear, there's even fear there that, that, that they're unveiling something. And then we have the opposite side where, where we're kind of going into more of a rest and digest or a stay in place. And really the stay in play going into parasympathetic is really where we eventually want to have clients. However, I will tell you that through an infusion, we kind of bypass a lot of the mechanisms of digestion. But when you're not, uh, when you take it and you know through it in your mouth, much of that ketamine is not bioavailable just because it's going through the liver, it's going through the stomach, and it's not bioavailable. Mm-hmm. However, we know through research and some anecdotal um, research that we know that by stimulating the the vagus nerve into a sympathetic dominant state we know that we're going to inhibit digestion. We know that that's going to happen through the arousal of adrenaline and cortisol. We know that that's going to happen, thus allowing the ketamine to dissolve prior to digestive stages before getting into the abdominal cavity, maybe even up, more up into their thoracic cavity as they're sort of going down to the, down the throat and so forth. So it's just kind of digesting into the bloodstream before it hits the stomach. But that's part of it. So now we're getting a higher bioavailability, which anecdotally, I'll tell you, is probably closer to about 80 to 90%, whereas before we had maybe a 20% bioavailability, meaning it's just as effective as an infusion at a lower cost and a portable option. So for, for to be able to have patients be able to have medication with them where you could maybe do remote trip sitting with them. Also, we're finding that as we take them into that arousal and then bring them way back down through a parasympathetic breath work, it's bringing them into a, a place where they can find not just exploration within the ketamine psychedelic state, but as finding this ease with who's sitting with them, finding ease within their own self to make that not just me having ketamine, but me working through some hard things and feeling okay about it. I feel actually okay in this psycholytic state to discuss and to maneuver and to to sort of glide through this experience and talk to somebody about it. So we're finding a lot of a lot of patients are bringing their therapists with them, or they're having or scheduling something directly afterward. That's what we do. We have a group that does a telephone appointment afterwards. That specifically, that's all they do is ketamine coaching. Which is great. I, you know, I do some, I do a few activities with with patients when they sit with me um, that are more about, of course, the set and setting is, is key. You mentioned that, like how we set the space and the lighting. And I play live music when I guide. Um, I usually hand pans and flutes and chimes and stuff. Things that are 
in a way. I mean, you could listen to stuff on headphones and that's great too. But also we're doing these activities that create intention around the experience. And a lot of people maybe have had a psychedelic experience as a party favor. You know, they've they've had ketamine at a festival or they've had LSD at a festival and, they, and they're saying, okay, I know what that feels like. And, I didn't go to those parties. I oh, was I've been to a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to a lot of them. And I will tell you that the therapeutic aspect of it, it doesn't exist. It's not the same. It, yeah. I mean, it is nice. And, and if you have some time alone, then great. But I, you're not going into those deep areas of the limbic mind that influence fear and our emotions. And you're not going into those spaces to create those neural pathways. You're simply observing euphoria and pretty colors, you know, so and most most of which um, the experience becomes ineffable afterward if we don't document it and kind of talk about it through a psycholytic state. Yeah, it really is an opportunity. And, and it's important to to say that, you know, it is an FDA approved medication for anesthesia and it's been around forever. We use it a lot in kids. I worked in Vanuatu, which is a group of independent islands between Fiji and Australia. And we used it because we didn't have anything else. So we used it as our, our anesthetic in the OR. And it doesn't depress the breath. It's a very safe medication. Now, people say, well, and then there is one type of ketamine, S-ketamine, that is FDA approved for uh, treatment-resistant depression. And so I'm really excited on one hand to see the emerging research to see how it can help more and more and more with trauma, PTSD, depression, anxiety, even autism. But I'm kind of pessimistic on the other side because it's been around forever. There's really no profit. It's a cheap drug. I'm not sure who's going to pay for the studies so that it'll get approved for all these other conditions. So There's a lot of roar about MDMA going through FDA approval, and there's a lot of roar about psilocybin, and that's really who's the most popular kid on the block, really. But I think there's room to play in the therapeutic space with all of them. Now we're going in through a psychedelic renaissance, if you will, from, I'm reading a book now called The Immortality Key, which is talking about, you know, the Kukiana, the, the Greeks, you know, drinking the Soma from India and all these psychedelic ways for mystical experiences that led to healing, you know, in the past, historically. And, and then we kind of had this time where we banned everything. And now we're having a kind of a renaissance that's saying this actually does work through veterans with PTSD, for depression and lots of other opportunities for I think everyone to have a seat at the table. Now, who's gonna pay for it? You're right, and we have to find other ways. So like, for instance, we have a med student who is writing his dissertation on breath work and ketamine using kind of our example and ways to publish our research and to publish the data in hopes that maybe someone will see that and go, okay, that is worth a try. We're also seeing a lot of popularity on doing group sessions. Whereas, you know, maybe ketamine was done one-to-one, you get an infusion, you go see your therapist a couple days later when you're still in that afterglow. Now we're finding because, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't suppress the breath. And when you're coming out of sedation, you can talk and you're in an okay place. And it's, we're finding that in a community that it's quite healing. So by hosting breathwork sessions, people to get together, they feel that altered state through the breath. 
And then maybe they say, you know what, I am interested in using a, another chemical with breath work to then go a little further. And it took me some time to develop the protocol and how much is enough of ketamine and how, what breath work do I offer? What is the set and setting? What is the music? When do I introduce it at what timings? But now that I kind of got a pretty good um, handle on what the protocol needs to be, I think we can have a lot of forward momentum to help a lot of people. It's safe. You know, when I, I look at, we never want to be making claims because, you know, the FDA, the attorney general, there's so many government officials that that we just don't want to say the wrong thing. So it's this dance between helping people realize what's available with your doctor and through workshops like with you versus making any claims. And and I have a lot of personal experience to make sure that I don't say anything wrong. But to me, when you look at the side effects of some of the medications for depression and for anxiety, and you look at the the success rates of those medications, or maybe it would be better to say the lack of success rates. And there's some studies that show that it's no better than placebo, some of these medications that we have. So if you're open to it. And if you have someone who is going to take care of you through this process, then I think that it's worth exploring and at least worth learning about. And maybe just start with breath, because like you were saying, you know, the breath really can change the internal chemistry of it. Um, The other thing about ketamine that I, I really find fascinating is that it seems to last longer than, you know, like for an example, an antidepressant, people take it every single solitary day and you don't have to miss very many days to actually re- really know that you missed your medication. What we're finding with ketamine is that it's not one and done depending on what is being treated, but there are early, early research that's showing that, for example, treatment-resistant depression, that they can go weeks and sometimes months before they have to have another treatment. Or maybe they do an IV treatment, but then they do a home treatment in between because they know how their body reacts. And so the trochees and things like that, really, it's just another tool that we get. And I just feel mental health has never been more problematic than in the last few years don't you think we have we have have so many we have so many things that are coming at us i mean whether whether you work in well for instance i just did a retreat for a behavioral medicine ward at the local hospital and the nurses and the psychiatrists that are all there have gone through the ringer the last couple of years i mean you can just imagine just the the workplace um stress has then become from being an acute trauma to being a long-term you know, PTSD based around going to work to help people. To help people is causing trauma. And so we're seeing more and more of that. Um, and so we're trying to offer what we can. But the real honesty is like, when you go on a, a, a particular like antidepressant, let's just say Zoloft or something, it really it's a, a life sentence now, isn't it? I mean, it's really like you're gonna be on this all of your life, probably. We're starting you now, and if you go off, you're gonna feel horrible. You're, you might be able to go two or three days, but you're gonna feel not so good because now your hormones are all mixed up and you're not gonna feel good. Now, that doesn't mean that, that there's not some effective 
things that happen there. And maybe some patients do get healed from it. However, if you're not finding results, now you're hooked. You got to stay on it. So ketamine is such a great tool to be able to say, well, listen, we can do a six session protocols, you know, and come, come and do this with us. That's usually what we prescribe is saying, you know, let's do six sessions together. Let's start with an infusion. So you kind of get an idea. Let's do some breath work and then let's do five sessions of ketamine assisted breath work. We do those, we schedule those out. And for the most part, and again, we haven't been doing it all that long, but for the most part, people are only coming to about three of them before they say, you know, I'm really actually pretty good. I'm feeling great. Bad for business, great for patients though, you know? <laughs> That's good though. <laughs> yeah, so so we're saying, okay, yeah. They're like, yeah, I, I feel good. I don't know that I need, I'm off my antidepressants now and I've weaned off those and now I'm I'm gonna do breath work every day because you've given me, I've given them these tracks that they can use on their own to influence their own endogenous release of serotonin, you know, and like just to really be, let's do this together. Here's your tools. And they start to do that. They start to do things like working hormetic stress through ice uh, baths, through, through cold therapy, which is something I offer. And by doing these things, they're influencing their own willpower, first of all. They're influencing their own serotonin levels. And they're bringing themselves to alkaline states, um, at least temporarily to move into a hormetic stress where they're feeling stronger and balanced. And that's really what we want for patients. We want them to feel empowered to heal themselves. Can you explain, I understand, but it wasn't a term that I understood most of my life. Can you describe hormetic stress and, and what that is and why it would be beneficial? And I think that the ice baths are a great example of it because, you know, it's it's initially something that we would repel from. Um, so tell us about hormetic stress. A uh, little bit about hormetic stress. So as a Wim Hof Method instructor, we talk about this a lot because I don't know of a better way to experience a hormetic stress than just sitting into a place of discomfort like an ice bath. Most of us live quite comfortably in our air-conditioned or heated homes, wearing clothing, conditioning the air in our cars, and really being comfortable all the time. And when we notice mild discomfort, we sometimes reassociate with that with who we are. So I am so stressed or I'm just feeling stressed or I'm angry. I'm feeling anger. So we kind of reassociate with not that being a, identifying with who we are as the personality, but what we're experiencing in a mild form in that moment. Hormetic stress is simply that it is a mild stress that allows there to be a wave, if you will, a wave that goes into a fight or flight mode potentially that says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and get the pupils all dilated. I'm going to wrap it the heart rate. I'm going to get the digestion stop, you know, to stopping. I'm going to play with all these body processes through a bottom down regulation. The mind says I'm in stress. Let's shut some stuff down so we can perform. Save this human from whatever they're doing here. For the most part, all we're really feeling is vasoconstriction within the extremities. In doing so, we release adrenaline, which will help warm the body. Um, we're also, as we're breathing, we're finding intercostal friction, which is creating heat within the core. And once you've learned how to do this, you can actually be quite warm sitting in an ice bath, feeling grounded. And it is the deepest meditation I've ever done is sitting in ice baths. And I do that six days a week, usually. And that hormetic stress is really a lot like if you 
go to the gym. Think about going to the gym and the first time maybe you picked up a, a set of uh, dumbbells and you started to curl them and you're like, okay, this is a good weight. I think I can increase this. Okay, I'll increase it. So you grab a next set and you increase. And before you know it, you're four sets in because that's what you think you're supposed to do. And then the next day, you can barely feel your biceps, right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, they're so sore, they're, they're in pain. And I don't know if I'm ever gonna do that again, but then, you know, maybe a month later, you go back and you, you lift again and then sore and then you lift. And let's say you're four months into your workout regimen that you committed to doing, all of a sudden, you're no longer sore anymore. You're actually building and you're feeling good and you leave the gym going, that was a good workout. That was a really good workout, I'm glad I did that. To me, a, a hormesis of that or that balance or that hormetic stress is essentially like lifting weights. We're trying to build the muscles specifically in our mind um, that say this amount of spike within my adrenaline and cortisol and the stress level that the medulla is telling me I should run from is okay because I'm in control of my own alchemy here. And as I let it spike and I gradually lower it down, I'm receiving the benefit of the bottom half of that bell curve, which is moving into parasympathetic and melatonin being released and serotonin being released within the body. And I'm now able to say, I remember this feeling when I'm being, uh, you know, maybe fired from a job or I'm, you know, in traffic and I'm being cut off. I remember this feeling, the ice bath reminded me, you know, of that that I'm okay, that this little will pass. Just like my breath rises and falls, so will this spike in adrenaline that makes me feel like anxious and stressed and out of control. But I know through my training, this hormetic bell curve, that I'm okay. What ends up happening is that becomes part of our subconscious in those neural pathways we talked about to where that's where our default mode network is. It's not to panic. It's not to breathe heavy through the mouth. It's actually, oh, there's that, and we move through it. So it's really the ultimate stress response training. I would say so. I mean, I do a lot of, I, I train a lot of athletes and a lot of, a lot of clients who are working to do things in high altitude training or to get over mouth breathing, which is, and we do a lot of CO2 tolerance training. So basically I'm teaching them to sit with the, this stressor of CO2, because as we hold the breath, especially in a neutral lung, CO2 will build up creating acidity within our body. We need that acidity to let the oxygen release from the red blood cells. We, we need that to happen. You have to have a little bit of acidity there because hypoxia, you'll just hang on to it and we don't want that. But as I train athletes to do this and we're building up that, that stressor, the body wants to breathe. It thinks that it needs air, even though you don't. Even though you've, you know, we've done a lot of super ventilation or over breathing to have plenty of oxygen saturation, the body still gets stressed out and says, we usually breathe 15 times a minute. You're holding your breath now for over a minute. What is going on? Why are we not breathing? And it starts to freak out. And that's really an amazing piece of training too, saying, do I really need to breathe? Or am I just feeling sensations of CO2 stressing me out? And that's a, a feeling thing. And it's also literally structural because the amygdala has receptors for CO2 and they instantaneously make us feel anxious and panicky. So if we can remodel the receptors 
the CO2 receptors in the amygdala because your body will continuously remodel the membranes and the cell receptors based on the environment. That's the definition of epigenetics. Then you're actually changing the structure. You're actually changing the chemistry and you're changing the feeling response. So you're hitting it all. How come, like, this should be part of panic attack training? It should be. Well, actually, I'll tell you about a panic attack, actually. I got to witness one, not luckily, but I got to witness one while going through the airport. It was kind of interesting. But the amygdala we've found, I've done a little bit of research and people who have written some papers and dissertations on the amygdala, but we're finding that there's something called cardiac coherence. And cardiac coherence is essentially the nervous system that kind of ends in the amygdala, but kind of it's flowing through the heart. So this cardiac coherence or the heart coherence. So when we're going into those times of fear, when we're holding the breath, I always tune my, my patients in and the clients into, let's slow down the heart rate. And as we slow down the heart rate, the fear rate also slows down. And it's, it's pretty amazing to, to have someone realize that they can control their heart rate. So panic attacks, panic attacks. So I was in the Denver airport coming back from, uh, well, I was in Poland for a little while with my teacher Wim Hof and we were, I was in Prague and then in Germany. And I was taking a flight from Frankfurt, Germany to Denver. And I was in Denver and I had a little bit of a layover before coming to my little airport, St. George Airport. So I had a little bit of a layover and this is in the whatever wing that is where all the little airplanes go. And so I'm sitting there and I hear a lady in the background, no, no, don't close the door, you know. And she's doing her best to pull the luggage and move her body down the corridor. She's screaming, hollering, yelling. The door had already been closed. There was no way she was getting on the flight. You know, once they close that door, it's done. So she got there and immediately this inspired her panic attack. She started <gasps> like you would imagine people panic attack in through the mouth. She's beginning to <coughs> cough. Now, in this day and age, when you cough in the airport, no one wants to be around you. So, no. so, so she's coughing, she's heaving and wheezing. And of course, the gate agent's trying to stay away from her and is telling her to breathe. And I'm sitting just on the back side of how the benches kind of have back to back. And I'm sitting a couple seats away, back to back. And I finally look at the gate agent. And I say, I'm a breathwork facilitator. I, I, I would like to help her. Can you let me help her? And because they were telling her to breathe more and which is not the answer in a panic attack, okay? Because she's already, <gasps> she needs to exhale. She needs to exhale and release the CO2, which is part of the stress factors that are happening there. There's a lot of fear happening. There's a lot of stress building up. So I basically had her humming which is great for NO2. If you think about humming, you're creating nitric oxide, which is a vaso and bronchodilator. So just mm, as you hum it out, this brought her panic attack from a 10 down to about a seven within a, within a minute. Very, very quickly, it was, it was a tool that we carry with us at all times, but we don't always know how to use it. So breath work not only is good for people really like the hypoxic feeling because they can feel the saturation of oxygen and feel euphoria and feel all these feel good things, but also CO2 training and CO2 tolerance training is a massive piece of what we do in breath work. And most people don't train that because it's not easy. It's not f as fun. It doesn't feel as good. It's actually quite difficult, but that's when I take people onto mountains to do high elevation training. 
That's what we work first. That's what's more important. Well, and it's interesting, one of the most common lung conditions that affect us human beings is, is COPD, mostly caused by smoking, unfortunately, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as emphysema. And there's they're called blue bloaters. And then their chest gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And basically, the lung is becoming stiff and it can't exhale. It can't squeeze out. And so really, what we're told in medical school is be careful giving these COPD patients too much oxygen because you're going to turn off their drive to breathe. Because really what it is, is a CO2 problem. It's not an oxygen problem. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that though. What was the old technique where have them breathe really big into a bag, right? Well, yeah, that was great. Maybe in the night before we knew more. Uh, <laughs> but now we know, let's just hum out and have more release of CO2. And frankly, CO2 gets a bad rap. Everybody thinks that it's a byproduct or it's a toxin in the body or it's garbage. It's really not. It's part of cellular respiration. And water is also part of cellular respiration. So is ATP. So is moving into the DNA as part of cellular respiration into the mitochondria. So there's a lot of things that happen in cellular respiration that are just as important as oxygen being breathed in. If we just breathed oxygen and we didn't let go, it would be a pretty hot mess too. <laughs> we, need, we, need, we need to have all the other stuff happening. So... Well, and I and I love that you started off the conversation by saying, you know, we have our cars air conditioned, we have our, our houses heated and air conditioned, and, and there's really a very, very limited flexibility. And I think that flexibility is key to health and longevity and certainly the ability to overcome health stressors, even if it's something like bacteria or viruses or whatever, your body needs to be able to respond. And if you're living in this tight, tight, tight little window of everything, we don't eat a variety of food, we don't breathe outside of this, you know, very regimented, shallow, rapid breathing pattern, we don't have temperatures, we really aren't very flexible. We've become less flexible. A lot of people don't realize what you eat affects your CO2 levels too. So it's, it's very, very important that what we eat is also part of it. You know, I, I work with, um, well, I have a couple of things that I'm doing. One of them is the language of breath. And I'm a language of breath instructor, really just talking about that's the language that our body speaks. It speaks in chemical and frequency. And if we're going to regulate those things, we really have to understand what's happening within us. Now, that, that particular technique is really around veterans and PTSD. But what I'm doing in the clinic is something I'm calling breath as medicine. And it's really to prepare not only for ketamine-assisted therapy, but maybe even pre-anxiety operations. So just pre-op. How am I feeling before I go in? And well, that could potentially affect the inflammation in the surgery. So if you're working through this breath work and you're working through getting into parasympathetic before going in and trusting in the doctor and also feeling good within yourself, that's going to change the outcome of the operation. Oh, absolutely. You've got an anabolic process, building, healing, versus a catabolic process, CO2, inflammation, cortisol, all of these things, tear it apart. So yeah, the outcome could be 
quite different. And can you imagine if your anesthesiologist led two or three minutes of breath work before they put you under? That's what we're doing down here. You know, and Satori just happens to be owned and operated by an anesthesiologist, and he uses that in his practice in the operating room when he's on whatever he's working on. I don't know what his daily schedule is, but Dr. Allen is doing that and offering breath work. And I have recordings out there so that clinicians can use that are that are for that. You know, I don't have to be only there with you. I, I offer those through my, my patron page so that people can use them for for whatever, mostly for the means of ketamine-assisted breath work, but also pre-op uh, anxiety and other conditions. We actually have a, a client now that a younger patient, she has some dentistry anxiety. And I mean, I, th- I think I do too, probably, but, but, but really it's, it's become, Nobody likes it. yeah, but, but it's, it's become like a, a place of not just fight or flight, but like freeze, just, I'm no. And really it's like the fainting goats, right? Where it's just, and black out because of that amount of high stress is overloading the, the nervous system in this young girl to where it's just dentistry can't happen. And so we're finding breath work, just breath work is been the key to unlocking and finding ease for her to be able to get her teeth cleaned. You know what else I think of? Hmm. I took a lot of exams in my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I remember in undergrad, I was so stressed. I literally would listen to Mozart music. I mean, I would just try all of these different things to try and calm down before a big test. And imagine if I had had or if students have at their fingertips some ability to do some breath work because when your brain is being fired in the fight or flight, like it, it is before an important exam, if you're nervous, it cannot also be firing in the prefrontal cortex that is making executive decisions and navigating the test and choosing the things that you remember well and things like that. So, gosh, this is so fantastic. You know, my purpose not just with the BioThrive podcast, but in everything that I do is to help people be the CEO of their own health. And having practiced breath work skills seems like something that should be in your armamentarium. It should be in everybody's toolbox. It should be taught in elementary school. It, it certainly should. I, I mean, I would love to see. I, I know uh, at the Windsor School, if they're, there's a, they're around, I know the Windsor School, they teach that to young kids, which is wonderful. I was able to teach there in Denver one time, which was great. But yeah, it's really not. It's almost as though it's sort of ignored. I mean, meditation and breath work should certainly be there. I'm a big subscriber in both of those ice baths and all of, of such. Vipassana meditation, I think, is super powerful. I watched a documentary recently about, it was called Doing time, doing vipassana is what it's called. It's just, and, and it's, and it's on. A, it was, a, it was a documentary done about ten years ago about prisoners in one of the roughest prisons in uh, Delhi, and they SN Goenko came to them and started with ten, started with then went to twenty, then went to a thousand prisoners doing vipassana meditation, which is ten days silence, guided. I mean, some of it's guided, but it's all insightful and clearly seeing meditations. They use anapana, which is a breath work and some other things to tune in. But what they were finding is nearly 50% reduction in return rates of prisoners just by doing Vipassana and tuning in to themselves and saying, you know what, I can heal myself, I can feel. 
Whereas in many instances, we tend to point. The reason why I'm so stressed is because you. The reason I stress is because of this. Or I feel this way only because of that. Instead of personal responsibility and certainly using the tools that are in our toolbox. Yeah, and I think that whenever we feel something that is uncomfortable or that we might not label it right away as fearful, but it is, we have a tendency to try and avoid it or hide it or turn away from it. And I think that breath work and um, meditation, you can't hide. You're giving space for those things to look you in the eye. Look you in the eye. <laughs> look you in the heart, really. Yeah. Oh, look, yes. Like, absolutely. who are you really? Who do you think you are? And who are you really? You know, and I, I think we can't lie to ourselves for so long. You know, my, my, my guru, he said something to me that I use in so many instances now. But he told me that all transformation, not just some, all transformation comes from discomfort. Yeah. It just it's, doesn't, doesn't come easy. It doesn't come as like, oh, here, let me hand you some transformation. It comes from us working hard at something or making a change or moving through things that are uncomfortable because we humans, homo sapiens, we build up these walls to protect us. That's what our mind has told us to do. That worked last time. So let's build a wall to protect it so you don't have to fight that again. But the problem is those walls get quite tall we then have been surrounded by walls and we don't get to experience discomfort anymore, which is thus reducing our transformation ability. So we have to step into it sometimes and say, okay, let's go explore this hard place, this subject, this thing. Let's have that hard conversation with our partner. Let's talk to our boss about getting a raise. Like let's do these things that are not easy. And how do we get there? Well, we have to first prime our nervous system to be able to say, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. And we also maybe have to move through some hormetic stress that says, you know what? I know what it's going to feel like when I'm sitting there. My body's going to want to sweat. My heart rate's going to be racing. But by feeling that, now I can sit there and speak clearly, effectively, and slowly, and at a place of ease, which is probably a more clear thought process than if I was in a fight or flight mode. I would more likely just be like, but I, w I deserve a raise. Give me it. You know, or I could say, well, here's the facts. Here's where I've been at. And this is my request. And we show up kind of in my podcast. Like she, we show up as observers. We show up as responders rather than reactors. And I think that having the tools and the community, not feeling alone, is really key, really, really key to, to sitting in discomfort. I think discomfort and boredom are two things that we ought to be able to surf surfing or dance i see myself just like on a surfboard surfing and like here i am surfing discomfort i know like i need like i need like a like a gif or something that i can put on my instagram story that's me surfing on a discomfort wave yeah well look for yeah. it it's gonna happen really soon i really like that analogy <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I used to dance uh, in a ballet company professionally before I went to med school. And so, you know, there were, I didn't get to pick the music, yeah. but 
you know, and the music is our ex- external environment, but but we learn to dance. We learn to dance through all the different kinds of music. And so learning the tools like breath work, having external tools like ketamine, having a community or a physician or a coach or someone to help like you is so important to being able to take that leap into that discomfort. It's, it's really good to have a coach. Yeah, it's really good to have a coach. I, I use coaches myself, even though I can teach myself. I, I have several coaches that I work through. And what I get a lot of um, is people say, well, I've been breathing my whole life. Why do I need to come to you? And I will say, well, you've probably been doing it wrong and not knowing that. You probably just don't know because that's just your normal. Come experience something different and notice how you feel. And whether that be through the use of a psycholytic state with breathwork and ketamine, or maybe that just be just breathwork and experiencing it. Even as, a, even as a yoga instructor, before I started studying breathwork and diving deep, I didn't know enough. So if you've been to yoga and you're like, ah, I've done some breathwork and yoga, I'm gonna tell you that that is such a small piece of the breathwork that I know. Even though pranayama, which is traditionally, you know, the, the divine life force is what the, you know, is called in the, in the yoga sutras, is such a small piece of what we can actually do and what we know now through breathwork, different techniques, but it's really more about interoception. It's really about how do I feel and how can I influence how do I feel to feel even better? Because I can give a whole bunch of people techniques and they'll put them all together and then jumble them all up. So having a coach and someone to say, this is what I want to feel. This is what I'm currently feeling. This is the condition that I'm working through. And to have somebody say, okay, let's put you together some protocols and here's some homework. It's not just anecdotal. It's not just mystical anymore. I put, usually give people a pulse oximeter so they can see it working. I'll, maybe I'll even put a, a vitals cuff on them, put a BP cuff on them so they can see that what's happening. They're like, okay, I'm watching my heart rate fall. I'm watching my oxygen levels drop as my CO2 levels rise. And, and it's really powerful stuff for people to see, okay, he's not just this yoga guru that's telling me that I'll feel great if I do a posture. I'm actually seeing some data here. And we have a lot of um, other pioneers in the field who are also wanting it to be credited in a way just as powerful as, as Western medicine, saying Eastern medicine of the breath work can now be implemented and augmented into all treatments to to serve you. So, And it's a tool that you, as the CEO of your own health, can bring out at any time, and you can be in control or take back control of the situation instead of being reactive. I think that science is the new language of mysticism. We're actually showing every month, year, decade that goes by, all of these things of the past that were considered mysticism are now showing up in quantum physics, in mathematics, in medicine, and in data. So thank you for sharing and bridging that gap. And I can't wait to see you in July. Have a beautiful day. Thanks so much for being here with me, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. I hope that some of the information helps you become the CEO of your own health. Remember, health can be contagious, so be sure to pass this on to those that you love and make sure that you subscribe so you're right on track to hear more amazing information to help you thrive. Have a beautiful day.